Lord, thank you for your word. I do pray that each of us would live our life with a great deal of passion and fervency as in obeying you, following, serving you, knowing that every one of us will stand before you at the judgment seat of Christ and will give an account of our life, be recompensed, rewarded for what we've done for you. And Lord, we will suffer loss for the things that we have not done. And I just pray that we would live lives of uh, zeal because of you and because of all that you've done for us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Number one in your notes, the rest as a term and topic is mentioned only in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. So you will see it in the Old Testament a couple of times. We'll, make, uh, we'll read those references. But in the New Testament, no other writer uh, mentions it at all. It's one of the reasons why I don't hold the view that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews because it's such a predominant theme in the book of Hebrews, it seems like if Paul had written it, it would have popped up in some of his other writings. Uh, but Hebrews is the only book that uses the word rest, and it's a major, major uh, topic uh, right in the middle of the book and referred to throughout the, the rest of the book. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16 is where it's first introduced. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? They would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So the rest is going to be compared by the writer of the Hebrews to the promised land. And uh, they didn't go into the promised land. They died before they got there. And then he makes application of that to us, uh, to believers. Uh, a rest that we have that is similar to what they had that they weren't able to enter into. Hebrews 4.1, Therefore let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. So this is written to the believers that have drifting away, and he says, this is a serious warning, let us fear, lest if a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to come short of it. So it seems fairly obvious there in the context that this is written to believers who fall short of the rest. For indeed we have had good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, some to enter it, and so the writer is here urging, motivating, stirring people up so they might be those who do. Uh, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience formerly had good news preached to them, and they don't make it because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day, today saying, through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, for if Joshua had given them rest. So he's referring to the promised land, Joshua taking Israel into the promised land. He said, if Joshua had given them rest, in other words, if that had been the rest that he's talking about, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So it's obvious that the promised land that Israel experienced was not the rest that he's referring to. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That's in the future, us. 
the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So the language that's used there, let us be diligent to enter that rest, uh, you won't find that kind of language in reference to any kind of salvation verses any place else in the New Testament. Let's be diligent to enter that rest as we fall through following the same example of disobedience. Uh, that's not typically the kind of words you use when you talk about somebody trusting Christ uh, by faith alone apart from any works. And so this one is a strong stated uh, warning so we need to be diligent, work hard, so that we enter that rest. Uh, otherwise, we don't, won't enter it. Number two, the writer of the book of Hebrews quotes Psalms 95.11, the only reference in the Old Testament to the rest, which is an obvious reference to the promised land. So he begins this uh, topical study through two chapters and plus others by inference uh, from this particular quotation in Psalms that say, a passage that's dealing with the millennium, the kingdom, in the future. Psalms 95, 11, Therefore I swore in my wrath, truly they shall not enter my rest. Deuteronomy 12 makes reference to it, For you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live security. So the initial use of the word in the Old Testament was the promised land. They would enter into the promised land. They would be at rest from their enemies. And uh, it would be a great place, though Israel never experienced the full promise that's made in the Old Testament. And they won't until the millennial kingdom when Jesus comes. Um, and uh, we're going to come with him. We'll read that verse in a bit. And he conquers all of his enemies, sets his kingdom up on the, war, on the earth, and the millennial kingdom begins. Those who are in the promised land, uh, those who are ruling with him, are the ones who will be in the rest in the promised land. Number three, the writer of Hebrews is making an application of the word rest beyond that of the initial conquering of the promised land. Psalms 95.11, the word rest is referring to uh, the nation of Israel moving into the promised land, and it's obvious that it didn't happen under Joshua. And it's still future when that will come, when they are at rest from their enemies, and all the promises that are made in Isaiah 60 through the 65, Ezekiel, etc., are experienced by the nation of Israel. Hebrews 4.8 for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Number four, so the big theological question, what is the rest? What is the rest? Again, most uh, believers have read the Bible for 10, 15, 20 years, read through Hebrews umpteen times, read through chapter 4, and very seldom probably do they ever ask the question, what is the rest? They're just the automatic assumption. Number five in your notes, most people when they read through the book of Hebrews will almost always assume the rest is equivalent to eternal life. And just reading through it without 
thinking about what you're reading without doing any uh, pondering about the word rest, uh, you probably aren't going to say, oh, let's see, I've never read that any place else but right here in the book of Hebrews. I wonder if it means heaven. Very few people will read through that and think that. Or, they, uh, or read the book, uh, read through chapter 4 and see all the words like diligent and fear applied to it and have the thought, I wonder if it's referring something other than heaven. Very few people do that. Most, I would guess, probably 95% of the average person who reads through the Bible uh, on a, a Bible reading schedule are going to get the word rest and automatically just assume the topic is heaven. Number six, if the rest is being used as a cinnamon for eternal life, it is difficult then to believe that a person cannot lose their salvation or that a person is not saved by good works. So if you read the requirements for getting in the rest, just uh, take a couple of days and read, read uh, chapter 3, verse 16 to the end of chapter 4. And uh, just take notes and ask yourself the question, what is the writer saying that I need to do or be in order to enter the rest? And you won't find faith mentioned. You, you find believe and faith a bit, but it's mostly diligence, works. Hebrews 4, we'll read, this is the, the key chapter, Hebrews 4, 1 through 11. Therefore, let us fear. If while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it, for indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. That's the reference, the lone reference to faith. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day, today saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So we're to be diligent to make sure we get into that rest and we don't fall through following the same example of disobedience. The writer makes a big deal of that one. Number seven, a few theologians believe and teach that the rest is a stage of maturity that we reach in this life if we grow enough. And the word rest from his works, meaning that we get to the point where we don't have to put out much effort. We are in this hyper, super Christian stage of living where the Spirit of God does the work in us and mostly we're along for the ride. Uh, I would really be cool if that were true. But as I said, it's difficult because I have never met anybody. Um, not to insult anybody in this room, but... Uh, Number eight, some believe that the rest is a reference to the millennial kingdom. And I would be in that group, that camp, when Jesus Christ rules on the earth for 1,000 1, years. So be diligent to enter that rest. For the nation of Israel, that was the promised land. For the nation of Israel, the millennial kingdom is the promised land. 
So uh, as far as the uh, analogy goes, the illustration, it falls along uh, quite nicely uh, in that it's talking about the promised land and being in the promised land. <coughs> Revelations 19, this is uh, for us a great day. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. So this is Jesus, the second coming of Christ. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses, and that is who? That's us. Except I'm going to be on a Harley Davidson. The rest of you can ride white horses if you like. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that when it, with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh is a name written King of Kings, Lord of Lords. This would be at the end of the seven-year tribulation period and Jesus comes and destroys the enemies and sets his kingdom up on the world and the capital will be Jerusalem. And, um, and so if you read through the churches in the book of Revelation, you see one of the rewards that we receive as being at the right hand of Christ, ruling and reigning with him. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss. A great chain was in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old. How many angels did it take? take on the dragon just one it's just one how tough is the, the, the devil not very only one angel grabbed a hold of him laid hold of the dragon the serpent of old and threw him in the pit uh, so I think it reminds me the time my Jack Russell was sleeping in my recliner and he knew that was no and so he thought it was gone and I snuck up on him and I grabbed him Right by the back of his neck, he had that extra wrinkly skin. I picked him up, opened the door, and pitched him out the door. Uh, and he never sat in my chair again that I'm aware of. <laughs> but that's kind of what this picture is. Laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. The cool thing about the millennial kingdom is there's no devil, no demons, uh, and Jesus is in charge. And then he's going to get released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they, uh, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, they came to life and reigned with Christ. They came to life and reigned with Christ. This is the beginning of the kingdom, what the beginning of the thousand years. They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So there's a group that don't go into the millennial kingdom. The assumption is they're all lost people. You will read through that. All oh, the rest, they didn't come to life. They didn't reign with Jesus. So we automatically assume those are the ones that are going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. But it doesn't say that just says they're not in the kingdom. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who is part in the first resurrection. So the ones that go into the kingdom, they're blessed and holy. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God, of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. So the ones that didn't go in, 
Um, again, the natural assumption is they're all lost. And so uh, my view is that there's a bunch of those that don't go in that are believers in Jesus that will eventually be in eternity with him, but they're going to have a little bit of a parenthesis uh, during the thousand-year rule and reign of Christ. They're not going to be with him in the promised land in Jerusalem, ruling and reigning with him. So where they are, that's the difficult part of this uh, view, and we'll talk about that next week. Number nine, the kingdom view seems best because the original use of the word rest obviously refers to entering the promised land, and the promised land is a key part of the kingdom of God on earth. So I, I, I forgot to tell you at the very beginning, if we, when we look at, get done with this and you don't like this view, uh, you're, it's perfectly fine to hold the, the traditional normal view that it's heaven. Uh, you won't be in bad company if you do. Jeremiah 31, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will pour my law, uh, put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor, each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, they all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, their sin I will remember no more. That's the kingdom era. That's Jesus ruling and reigning. Uh, uh, his word is in us, and everybody is teaching everybody, I won't have a job doing this when I get there. I'll have something else to do, whatever it might be. I think probably they're going to need professional fishermen. And Jeremiah 32, going on about the uh, second covenant. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders and with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm with great terror and gave them this land, this land, the promised land, which you swore to their forefathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. They came in and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this calamity come upon them. So they went into the promised land, but if you read the book of First uh, and Second Corinthians, first you'll see all that they went up and down, up and down, up and down. Finally, they were taken into captivity. They didn't do very well. So obviously, that wasn't the fulfillment of the promise of the kingdom era on that promised land. Jeremiah, again, Behold, I will gather them out of the lands. This is later. I will gather them out of the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place, make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people. I will be their God. I will give them one heart, one way, that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from uh, to do them good, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in the land with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I brought all this great disaster on this people, so I'm going to bring on them all the good that I'm promising them. And so anybody that pays any attention to what's going on knows that hasn't happened yet. Uh, they're not in the promised land. They're not secure None of these promises have happened. They will happen when Jesus comes and the kingdom is established on the earth. Number 10, the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish believers and their main focus on eternity is the promised kingdom of God on earth. So we usually talk about eternity in the terms of heaven. It's not a lot of detail in that. It's just after death, uh, good 
no taxes, no wars, uh, with very little detail. The average Christian, you ask him about heaven, it's just a good place. It's a happy place. Not much detail. But Jewish believers, their focus was not on heaven. It was on the promised land. It was on the promised land where there were no weeds and uh, there were no wars. And uh, they were in the land and they were in control of the land. And no one would ever take it away from them. And so all the promises that are written in the Old Testament, and there are dozens and dozens and dozens of them about what God would do for them as a nation once they get into that promised land. That's what they thought about, and that's what they expected Jesus was bringing. That's one of the reasons why they rejected him, because they were looking for the one that we read about in Revelation 19, the guy on the white horse with the sword. That was their, their hope. And so Jesus came on a donkey, and that's not what they were looking for. They didn't read Isaiah about uh, Jesus coming first as a humble servant and then as the conquering king. Acts 1.6, Jesus is leaving for heaven, and he's got these Jewish believers around him, 120, and so they had come together. They were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So he's leaving, and the question that comes out of their mouth is, now, now, is it now? That was their main focal point. That was their hope, the promised land being in it, uh, all the Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled. Number 11, the kingdom view follows along with the nation of Israel being a picture of the journey of a New Testament believer. So there's lots of types uh, in the Bible. That is uh, one Thing illustrates another thing, and there's some, the word type is used regularly to show that. And a type is where uh, an event is a prophecy, very acting out as a prophecy of a future event. There's a bunch of them in the Bible. It's a fun class to do sometime, just the typology of the Bible. But uh, this one, number uh, A, and you know, it's the Exodus under Moses' leadership is a picture of our salvation. So when you see the Passover, the lamb, the blood over the doorpost, and say, is that, what's that illustrating? It's obvious Jesus is the Passover lamb. His blood was shed. And so that exodus from Egypt was a picture of our salvation. Be the crossing of the Red Sea is a picture of our baptism. And see the wandering in the wilderness would be a picture of our life. As you read about that journey and what they did, it's uh, very easy to see that in some of the allegories that have been written, Pilgrim's Progress and others about the Christian life have relied heavily on the whole Exodus experiences, uh, part of the basis for the book. 1 Corinthians, Paul makes reference to this typology. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers, um, that's the Jewish uh, nation of Israel, our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. 
D in your notes, entering the promised land is a picture of entering the kingdom. One of the uh, topics that I've talked about in the past a lot that most believers, probably any place other than here, know very little about is the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, if you go to churches and say, what do you know about the judgment seat of Christ? A lot of them, it's like, uh, not sure. So there's lots of information in the New Testament about the judgment seat of Christ. We will all stand before Christ when we enter in. Uh, to eternity, and we will be judged. Uh, there's a bunch of verses, and we'll be looking at those next week. We will be judged for what we've done in this life, and we will be rewarded for the things we've done for Him and, and with Him. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says we will be uh, rewarded, and also uh, we will be disciplined. 1 Corinthians 3.10 says we will suffer loss. Our works will be burned, some people's works will all be burned up. They will enter heaven, but as if through fire, and they will suffer loss. Colossians, excuse me, yeah, Colossians chapter 2 says that we will be, uh, the, experience the consequences of the wrong which we have done at the judgment seat of Christ. And so the question is, at the judgment seat of Christ, when we are judged and rewarded for what we've done right, or disciplined for what we've done wrong, or failed to do right, what exactly is that? Um, and so that's the question that comes with this. But one of the obvious answers for reward is being with Christ, ruling with Christ at his right hand, being in the promised land and experience all that the promises are made about that and then being excluded would be uh, a consequence or a punishment. Number 12, one of the main problems with the kingdom view is the question, what happens to those who fail to enter the rest? So your assignment for next week is to figure the answer out to that and bring it, and you'll get an A when you have it. Let me read Hebrews 4 again. Therefore, let us fear. Fear, that's a consequence if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So this is a pretty heavy uh, 11 verses in regards to fear, be diligent, uh, lest you don't make it. 
Number 13, there are two classes of people who are excluded from the kingdom. Those who are genuine born-again believers and spiritually lost people. Those who will eventually be sent to the lake of fire for all eternity. So the genuine born-again believers, we won't see, at least I'm assuming that that's a we. Uh, I'm entering into the uh, rest, the promised land, so I don't know about the rest of you. Uh, and so those who don't make it into the kingdom, uh, it's going to be a thousand years before we see them on the other side, as it were. Fourteen, the classic view of those who have believed and taught the kingdom view over the years is that those who do not enter the millennial kingdom of Christ will experience some form of punishment for 1,000 years. So this view has been around since the early church fathers. And uh, you can, I've got a whole list of books written by um, authors for the last 2,000 years on this topic and on this view. And so if you read their book about this topic, the classic one, the one most teach, is that if you're not in the millennial kingdom, you're experiencing some form of punishment or consequence for the uh, lazy Christian life that you've lived. 